Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Okay, my guest this week is Lori Gonzalez, CEO of Twin Star Home. Uh, Lori, before we talk about all of the things you're doing at Twin Star Home, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about your previous experience because you spent nearly 20 years at what is now called Newell Brands, was called Jordan Consumer Solutions. You were there, I'm guessing, when it was called Sunbeam. Um, then background in consumer products marketing. And I would really love, given that you have such um, a unique experience compared to the way the furniture industry performs, to talk to you a little bit about um, the kinds of exercises that you went through in that role. For example, I mean, you dealt with brands like Food Saver and Crock-Pot and Mr. Coffee. And I mean, these are highly commoditizable products, yet you, through you know, really outstanding marketing and really creative consumer insight, were able to differentiate in the market. Take me through what, what a strategy meeting, what a thought process would be like um, when you were at, at, and I don't know whether to call it Jordan or Newell, but for, it's now Newell, so let's call it Newell. We can call it Newell, but I'm really a Jordan girl at heart. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, so I would say that um, I did spend 19 years there, almost 20 years and of my career, and it was really forming and really have had a number of different experiences. Um, when I joined, it was in the Al Dunlap era. And for people who remember in the late 90s, um, Al Dunlap was known as kind of the turnaround CEO. He turned around Scott Paper. He wrote, uh, authored a couple books, Mean Business. And um, at the time, he was really revered as, uh, you know, one of the best CEOs. And um, so it was highly publicized when he came to Sunbeam. And when I got the call, um, I was working at Fiskars at the time. And Fiskars, I'm sure many people would recognize their orange-handled scissors. And um, they're in lots of different consumer products businesses. But Fiskars was a pretty traditional um, consumer products company. It's traded on the Helsinki Exchange with um, a fairly regimented kind of training approach with um, product management. And so I decided to join Sunbeam at the time because that was really exciting. And um, I would say that me coming to Sunbeam from Fiskars was like drinking from a fire hose. So if everybody, um, you know, again, if you followed the Al Dunlap story, really- The only when CEO ever to be photographed wearing a bandolier. <laughs> He was a pretty interesting guy. Uh, I would say that uh, as the you know as the story goes, and if you read the history of Sunbeam, um, we were a public company, and um, Al Dunlap was indicted probably I don't know four or five months after I joined in early '98 um, for fraud, and um, he we were delisted from the stock exchange, and um, it was a it it started a, a really interesting time in my career. I was one of the only non-P&G people there in product management and in marketing, and um, but I had a pretty robust uh, product management background at the time. And so having that experience and sticking with it um, had, I think, changed the trajectory of my career at the time because 
we were in the middle of doing um, multiple acquisitions and integrating the Mr. Coffee business at the time, First Alert, Coleman. And so for my part of the business, I was on the appliances business. That meant Mr. Coffee. And um, you had to do things way beyond your pay grade. So um, when I started, not only kind of walking through that journey when we went, um, you know, basically got bought by private equity and, um, you know, kind of went into like a different trajectory for the company. We we're delisted from obviously the, the New York Stock Exchange. And um, we, I had nine different product lines as a product manager early on. And um, really we had to, um, again, do lots of different things that I just had to figure out on my own. And so, you know, an example of that would be we manufactured everything in the United States at the time. So one of my first things that I had to do was, um, you know, as leader of that product line in those areas, and we were really slim in terms of our staffing. We moved um, those product lines from the United States to Mexico. And then nine months later, we opened off up in office in China and, um, and moved most of that to China, kept some in Mexico. And um, so within the span of like 12 months, here I am, I'm 24 years old. I come from a really um, pretty conservative company that's regimented, but I'm definitely an entrepreneur at heart. I have that entrepreneurial spirit um, and I had to like figure that out. And so here I am, my first time in China, 24 years old. Um, were bought by private equity, and it's not the company I thought I was joining. But um, I would say, like, those first couple of years were, again, like, you can't buy that kind of experience. Um, it was a lot of work. We worked, um, for the people who stayed, you know, we worked 16, 20-hour days regularly. Um, you lived and breathed that. But I think, um, you know, coming out of that experience, I was a different person professionally, and I know it sounds crazy, but I got a ton of energy from that experience because I learned so many things really quickly um, and, you know, it enabled me to really move forward pretty quickly in my career and legitimately just learn by doing very fast. And now, that's one of those experiences that when in retrospect, you look back and you see the value and you tell yourself, I learned so much. Did it feel that way when you were going through it? Or are you one of those people who can tell yourself in the middle of a whirlwind, I'm, I'm going to learn from this? Or, I mean, was that a, how did you deal with that? It's a really good question. I think a lot of people around me left. Um, they had just come and they left. And I stuck it out because I love the beach. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we're in Delray Beach, Florida. And uh, South Florida is a great location, Um I was a competitive swimmer growing up, so I definitely have kind of that competitive spirit. And so, no, I don't think that going through it, I was like, oh, this is wonderful. 20 years from now, I'll look back and I'll think that this was a great experience. I think it was like I described it as quite hellish at the time. But um, at the same time, you know, I, I don't think that you can get that experience um, you can't buy that kind of experience. It's a once in a lifetime thing. And um, for the people that survived that, you, I mean, I look at the people who were around me. I mean, they've all done really, really well. And they've been able to transform, um, you know, that experience into something much greater and go on to do bigger and better things. And um, so for, you know, for several years, that was kind of the rhythm. And, um, you know, we came out of that um, really well. And, um, 
you know, going through that process, actually, even though at the time was a ton of hard work, was so worth it. Then we got bought by Jardin in the early 2000s. I think it was 03. And, um, and that started another kind of another segment of the journey. And so I was with Jardin from, you know, 03. We were Jardin until Newell bought Jardin in 2016. And, um, you know, Jardin was a fantastic experience. Um, so many wonderful, really smart operators. And the beauty of someplace like Jarden, from my perspective, is that you got the benefit of a really big company. So at the end, you know, Jarden was like, you know, 12, 13 billion dollar consumer products conglomerate, big company, but the way the the businesses were run was super independently. So I was leading for like the last decade that I was there, multiple businesses, and they were run very independently. So you got to be um, this kind of speed of the leader within your own businesses and leverage an operating infrastructure and have the benefit of some of the processes of a large company, but you were definitely not mired down in it. And it had just a really great entrepreneurial spirit um, that allowed you to really um, be empowered in decision-making and, um, you know, grow your business, um, the way that you felt it should be grown. And so that was, um, that was an awesome experience. Now, so people understand the scale we're talking about multi billion with a B dollar businesses, correct? Right. I mean, so it's, it's not like you were running a, you know, a, a million dollar company, you were involved in making billion dollar decisions for brands that consumers have had in their home for generations. Right. Um, you know, so I, I worked on a lot of different brands in my tenure. Um, most, almost all of the 20 years was centered in the kitchen and in small appliances. And so small appliances is a pretty big business. And we had, you know, number one, number two brands in the marketplace. We were the leader um, in that space largely. And, um, you know, I transitioned different businesses through the years, but um, I definitely have favorites that um, I will never use a competitive product. I'm very loyal um, for the businesses that I ran because I really, I really believe in what we developed. Can I ask what they are or is that a secret? It's not a secret. So Food Saver is one of my favorite brands that I've ever run. And that is, um, that's a, a pretty big business. It's the most, it, at the time, it was the most profitable business in the Jarden portfolio. Um, and that is, a, that was a really great platform. Um, we, during my tenure at Jarden, we acquired a lot of different businesses and integrated those. And so Food Saver was one of those that we, um, Jarden bought the Food Saver business. Um, actually, Holmes bought Food Saver, then Jarden bought Holmes. And uh, we integrated it into our company. And um, Food Saver is a business that um, really it touches everybody's life. So, um, you know, you can keep your food fresh five times longer. I'm like an infomercial. So we did do <laughs> we, we did do a lot of direct marketing, but, um, you know, had distribution everywhere that small appliances are sold. But there was such an energy around the consumers who were owners of Food Saver, like I've never seen before um, a brand loyalty um, so Food Saver is one of them, Seal & Meal, the Oster brand, Bister Coffee, Crock-Pot. I mean, there were so many um, really good brands. And then at the end, when um, 
at the end of my tenure there, uh, Newell bought Jarden, of course, and um, I transitioned into a new role, which was um, there were five in part of that business restructuring. There were five businesses that were going to be making up the food division at Newell. Um, food Saver was one of those. I also had the Oster business at the time, but um, I picked up Food Saver and Rubbermaid, Ball Jars, if you recognize Ball, Waddington, which is a business that Newell since divested. Um, so it was, uh, it was really interesting because I went from really strictly being mostly in the appliances space to um, more of a consumable space in um, Rubbermaid and some of the Waddington business and Ball Jars, which are really more higher turn type products. So how do you approach, I mean, there is probably nothing that's more a commodity than a ball jar. I mean, other than the name ball on the jar, people can find jars. I mean, Crock-Pot, which is a trademark, it is the band-aid of slow cookers, but slow cookers, very widely available. How do you approach a product like that and, and try to differentiate it and create that kind of, um, I mean, some of these brands have great net promoter scores. What's the what's the philosophy? How do you go about that? How do you get in touch with consumers and know what they want and and deliver that that differentiation? Yes, good question. Um, so honestly, I can go all the way back to my Fiskars days. I am um, a very keen observer of consumers, and so certainly there are a lot of different um, approaches and processes that I've learned along the way. I've learned a lot from a lot of different people, as well as um, you know, through our transition of different kind of headline companies and, and businesses that I had picked up along the way. But really, um, consumers are at the center of everything that um, I think any company does, whether you're a um, CPG company, a durables company, a furniture company, an industrial company, a service company, you're all you know, all of us are selling something to somebody. And if you start with who you're selling to and why, right? So really understanding, you know, in the Jarden example, um, what's important to these segments? Who is buying these, these things, right? Let's take Food Saver as the example or an Oster blender. So who's in the world of blending? Who are all those people? What's the household penetration? Let's get some market context into who owns them. What's the room for growth of the market first overlaying kind of macro trends. And then when you kind of cross that market context opportunity with a really, really deep understanding of consumer needs, and there's a number of ways to get at that, that's where you find the magic into driving insight and action of what to do. So if you think about consumer needs, and um, it could be as simple as if I would explain it really simply, it is, it starts with, I think, being curious. So being curious about, so, you know, who buys, why do people um, blend their food? Um, there's a lot of reasons why people do it. It's not just, hey, I'm changing my strawberries into a smoothie. It is, I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying to be healthy. I want to um, entertain people and I want them to think I'm a good cook. There are functional reasons why consumers use a product. There's emotional reasons and there's social reasons. And so... You've got to understand not just the functional output of what a product does, but why are they doing it? Why do they want to use it? Why? 
You can't just understand what, you have to understand why. And once you understand why, you can, you know, keep asking why till you get to the root cause. And therein lies the insight of what you need to deliver in product innovation, in merchandising, in messaging. Um, it sounds kind of, you know, um, loose and gray, but it's actually really um, you, you can be a pretty pragmatic black and white data oriented person and get at the root of what customers want and what the unmet need is. The key is to taking that data, that insight, that qualitative insight, that quantitative insight and translating it into an awesome product that will drive demand, that will grow market, that will grow your retailers, your, your partners, their share. Um, and that will grow your own business. And um, you can't do that without really understanding the consumer. You can get lucky a couple times, but you can't sustainably do that unless you're starting everything with an understanding of who the consumer is and what they want. Um, and talking about the consumer segment like they're sitting next to you all the time. You have to be always sitting and thinking and like sitting in their seat. And if you lose sight of that, then you know, you're probably gonna go off track. At some point, can you give me can you give me an example of an insight that gained that turned into either a feature, a benefit, a marketing position, and some kind of um, you know what was the insight and what was the outcome? Sure. So um, I'll use Food Saver as an example because that was uh, that was a few years ago, but. Um, you know, Food Saver, if, if you don't know what the Food Saver product is, Food Saver is a durable, consumable business. So there's an appliance that basically sucks air out of a bag. And I think most people have, have the knowledge that air air's bad. Air actually, if your food is exposed to air for an extended period of time, it causes freezer burn, it causes your food to go bad, and you end up throwing food away. And so, um, you know, we with a lot of the businesses that I ran at Jarden, we always started with kind of a, a, a consumer segmentation. And all that means basically is that you're taking the whole, like the world of consumers. So let's just say people who eat in the U S okay, well that's everybody. And you're breaking them down into segments and the segments, all the segments do is they create, they take attributes that are alike and they bunch them together. So a totally generic example would be bill. Let's say you like to fish. You like to design houses. You um, enjoy sporting events and you cook at home five times a week. I'm totally making it you up. So got me nailed. I, I'm sure I'm sure I don't, but, um, but we can get to that later but um but that's like so if if those are important attributes for whatever product you're developing let's say i'm going to group other people in your segment let's call it segment a who have those same attributes who index the same way you do and all you're doing is you're grouping like people together so that you can get a financial context for how much that market is worth how much is that growth worth if you want to address that market it's not just what is the market today, it's what is what can you shape the market to be? And so in Food Savers case, um, you know, one of the, I'll use a messaging um, example because I think this is um, something that we don't, like as an industry and as a, a group of professionals, I don't, I don't think we do this enough. And it's really just simple messaging. So um, we understood from our segmentation that, um, you know, the functional reason that people were using Food Saver is um, they feel they, they want to save money, right? So they buy in bulk at like a Costco, for example, they buy meat in bulk, they 
um, use their food saver system. They put it in food saver bags. They put it in the appliance. It sucks the air out. It keeps your food fresh five times longer. So they save a ton of money. So we quantified that. It's like, great, saves them $2,700 a year. And we put that everywhere. And that drove a material increase in our POS. Um, and then if you dig deeper, it's like, great. Well, functionally, it keeps your food fresher. It saves you money. But at the root cause of it, um, people felt guilty for throwing their food away. Okay, so we had this whole additional angle of you're not going to feel guilty for throwing your food away. So everybody, I think, has had this moment where you like people are in their kitchen the most. It's the most highly trafficked room in the house outside of your bedroom. Right. Because you sleep there. Mm -hmm. um, you open your refrigerator. What's for dinner? It's like, oh, God, like these strawberries are old. I have to throw them away. Oh, you open the freezer. What am I going to have? Oh, my steak is freezer burned. That sucks. Um, and people, you're throwing money away, right? So we turned that whole guilt thing into um, a TV spot and into messaging and into email outreach and online content. And, um, and it had a tremendous impact on our profitability and our sales. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, so let's let's fast forward now um, a couple of years, and you come into the furniture industry. Mm -hmm. It's going to be. Uh, it was just two years in March. Congratulations. Um, this is the first time that you actually have the CEO title, but you've run big businesses before. Did it feel different psychologically to be the CEO? I mean, the, the night before you went to work, did it feel any different? Um. Let's see. Well, I, when I resigned from Newell, I gave my notice. I gave him like three weeks. My last day, I was actually in Atlanta that week because I was based in Atlanta for the last role I had at Newell. My last day was Friday and I started with Twinstar on a Monday. So I didn't take any time in between. Wow. Um, so I was flying back, I think, like late Friday night from Newell, from my last day at Newell. And I started Monday morning at Twinstar. Um, did it feel different? Certainly, I think that there's a greater weight. You have, I, I felt, I've always felt responsibility for whatever I do, whether it's, you know, personal, professional, if I'm involved, I, emotionally, I feel a responsibility, but certainly I think being a standalone CEO versus a portfolio business leader in a larger company um, does carry more weight. Um, no, I mean, the night before, no, I felt good. I felt like it was the right decision. Um, I can't explain it. I just felt like it was the right, the right fit for me. I knew I could add value quickly um, to a place like this. And um, no, I felt good. I, I actually felt really good. But, um, but yeah, there are certain things that you can't do um, when you're a part of a mid-market um, company and you're the standalone CEO, right? So something goes wrong with the facility. I can't just like bing, bing, bing. I can't call facilities, right? So, I mean, like silly stuff like that, you know, um, are things you had to get used to. But but honestly, it's a very natural seat for me. I felt really comfortable from the beginning. So you go in on your first day. How did you introduce yourself to the new folks? What, what was your plan? Um, what was your strategy? What did you want to accomplish with that first day? Yep. Um, so I did a town hall the first day. So I came in, I met with, um, what was the leadership team at the time and, um, introduced myself and, um, you know, I'm really big, my personal philosophy in leadership really. And in life, I, I really believe, um, 
And, I, and it's not just a phrase. Like I really believe people make the difference, period, like end of discussion. Um, you could have a fantastic strategy. You could have a great product. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a super powerful leadership team, if you don't have an engaged organization, like you are not going to do well long term, period. I really, period. So I, um, you know, I'm a big game player. So I like to I like to know who people are, not just, um, you know, their professional bent, like a Myers-Briggs, if you've done one of those, or, um, you know, any of those kind of personality conflict resolution, what your, what your leadership style is. There's a number of different ones. Most people have done, I think Myers-Briggs is probably something most people are familiar with, but um, I do those kinds of things a lot. So I, you know, I like to get to know people very quickly and develop relationships quickly um, because I believe it's important. And so I got to know the people and then we went right into a all company town hall that day. Um, and uh, I had done a deck before I came here. I had done a lot of different things for Twin Star before I even officially sat in the seat because um, I wanted to do my research um, on the role in the industry and the company. And so um, I did a town hall and that's something that, you know, that's an example of something in the last, you know, since I've been here, we've done a monthly town hall, full organization town hall every month. We do it every month, um, no matter what. And, um, you know, I think for the broader organization, and that includes our China office, we've got um, about 100 people in Delray Beach, and we have about 100 people in our China office. Um, and so I did a live stream later that night, um, same kind of thing that was translated. Um, and, you know, those are things that so they could get to know who I am and what my approach is going to be in developing the strategy and um, what it means for them, like what they should look forward to. And, um, and then the first probably like three to four weeks, I did just a lot of listening. I asked a lot of questions. Um, I met with every functional group. I met with all, of course, the leadership team. But um, I went pretty deep in the organization and asked very specific questions. I asked questions of a lot of our retailers. And then, um, you know, I before I started or like my second day, um, I had – um, kind of hired out a bunch of just to do like a whole data dump of everything they could find in the industry. And I literally had a pile of, uh, if you can imagine, it, it would actually was all printed out just because uh, when I start something, I like to have everything like physical. So from like the floor, it was probably like a three foot tall, like big, just data and articles and decks and everything on the industry. And I for the first probably six weekends, I spent like every weekend kind of compartmentalizing that and developing the growth strategy for the company. And that took probably, you know, maybe 60, 70 days. Um, so I understood kind of market context. Um, we did a consumer segmentation um, and then developing, you know, looking at the financials and talking to people in the company and other people in the industry um, who were our customers and other people just who were affiliated with us. Um, from all of that insight, I formulated the growth strategy of the company. Um, so we launched a new mission, new values, a new growth strategy that we followed and that 
um, you know, every single person in this organization could recite because it's easy. It's very simple. And they know exactly in their roles what they need to do to affect that. It's not just words. It's like, okay, so in your specific role, whatever it is, you know, what is it that you have to do? What are the initiatives that you're working on? So we're really um, disciplined about kind of supporting things that drive the growth strategy of the company. Um, and that's all based on kind of data and consumer insight of what we found. So, um, so we track that and I talk about that every town hall along with our financials and um, we do some other like super fun things there too. Give me an example of a super fun thing. <laughs> so we, um, we launched something we call Bravo. Um, it's the Bravo program and we did this I mean, it's been it's been almost two years since we launched it. Um, and so every town hall. So I'm a big believer in um, in handwritten things, handwritten notes. And so I think for all of us, you know, the written word a lot of times is so um, the handwritten word. Like people don't do that very often anymore. And, you know, I have things that I've received from different bosses or people I've worked with over the years, just notes that I've kept. I actually have kept them. And um, sometimes they'll be like in my in my bag, in my wallet. Um, I keep stuff like that, even notes from my husband. Right. Like cute things. Uh -huh. um, but, 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 but I look at those. Right. When you like everybody has a bad day you look at it and it's like, hey, you know what? I am making a difference. Um, this is this, you do matter. And so one of the things that I started when I came is at first I started and said, look, I, I want you guys, everybody in the organization to write a handwritten note um, to somebody else before the next town hall. Just one. And we started there and that basically grew into the Bravo program. So we have these little Bravo cards and Bravo is translated as like Bravo in every language. It's actually, um, and it's in the shape of like a fire flame. Like you're the spark that fuels our fire. And on the back, um, people write just somebody who's gone above and beyond. What do you appreciate? It's, it's, we don't even have to ask for it. So every month people write Bravo cards to, you know, Bill McLaughlin from Lori Gonzalez. Bill, I so appreciated the, you know, the time that you spent with me um, in the podcast interview and the attention to detail and your fun style of interviewing. Like that would be like just authentic, like, you know, notes of encouragement or, hey, like you really kicked ass. You drove an increase of X percent on margin. And what we do is the ELT comes up after every town hall. We go through the financials. We do like a day in the life of different functions so people can understand what other people in the organization work on. And then we do Bravo. And sometimes, so we literally, we get all the cards together. Um, every town hall, we pick two out of the, like, out of the deck. And they get, like, you know, I don't know, $30 gift card to Starbucks or something like that. Like, just fun little things. But then we read every single one. And if you get a Bravo card, you, you like, it's like two Bill McLaughlin. You're in the audience of the town hall. You stand up. Um, we read it, you know, and you sit down. So, like, you, like personally like get recognized and I'm telling you like it's transformed the culture of our organization because so many times people people um think oh wow they did an awesome job there but they never put it on paper and so if you look around our organization there's people like in their cubes they have these bravo cards like posted up um like all over and um and really you know the point is look we're all accountable to each other every role in the organization matters no matter if you're in customer service if you're the vp of sales like um, everybody has a role and everybody has a job to do 
and you've got to do it with like a hundred percent. And we want to recognize you when you do that. And, um, and it's made such a big difference and people get excited about it um, because they're like publicly being recognized. And then they have a handwritten note that they keep. Um, so we started that here. We've been doing it for a long time every month. And then we also do it in China. So, you know, we have, again, 100 people that work for Twinstar in China. So our office in China does exactly the same thing, and they do it. And culturally, that is really different, um, as you know. Um, so that's made a really interesting um, impact on the China organization, and they have changed. So we've tried to really open up the communication between, you know, we're literally like 20 hours flight apart. Um, we've tried to, you know, we do video, we call it Monday morning message. Um, so on our China office and in the US office, we have things streaming like all the time with each other so that people who don't go over there can feel a part of that part of our organization. Let's talk about the impact on the actual business. How have you found the translation from the small appliance business to the furniture business? You started out kind of having to take existing product and now two years later, completely different showroom, completely different feel. How has that process worked and how has it transformed what you're doing? Um, it's Can you been do the same thing for furniture? Absolutely, unequivocally, yes. Um, I would say, um, you know, I was I was on the board of an industrial company um, that was private. Uh, it was private equity owned. It was a portfolio company. I was an independent director and um, it was an industrial company with a retail consumer arm, but it was primarily an industrial company. And I said, listen, guys, I don't know if I should be on your board because um, I'm really I'm a consumer products girl. They're like, no, nope, we want you. It's like awesome. That was a great learning experience. And that basically told me agnostic to industry agnostic to industry, the tenets of running a business and doing it well and understanding how to drive growth um, and efficiency, they're all the same. It's just with a different context. So I would, you know, I say that in context of coming into the furniture industry. I think what was this, what was similar is, look, um, furniture touches everybody's life, um, just like in the small appliance business. Um, look, People interact with that on a daily basis. Furniture is personal. It's emotional. It's design-driven, just like appliances. Everything you have in your kitchen, you're interacting. It's a design and function-driven. It's a consumer product. And so um, I think that you get a really understanding coming from, you know, being in a, a small appliances business into the furniture business of how consumers live and how they want to live, what works, what doesn't, and why. So as part of my 20 years at Jarden, you know, all the stuff that I spent time on was really around the home, but it was centered in the kitchen, but we had products all over the home. And so you had to understand how consumers live and frankly, furniture's right in there. Um, so that's what's similar. The other piece is um, Twinstar is the leader in electric fireplaces. There's at, at the end of the day, it's a heater. Um, I mean, I, my background is appliances and heat and there's certain things that you have to know how to do to be good in manufacturing and understanding all the different elements around a heater that's different than just building furniture the the unique thing about our company is a lot of our products have furniture surrounding the fireplace um but but we have a lot that are just you know straight up furniture without heat um i think what's different and what i have enjoyed is I would say, generally speaking, um, there's a lot more people that I knew in the industry than I thought I would know. 
the, the world is a lot smaller. It always feels like it gets smaller every year. Um, what I, what I was surprised is, um, how friendly just, just generically, like the industry is very friendly and very family oriented. Um, what surprised me is, you know, people would say, Oh, like wonderful. You're coming over to the furniture industry. Like, wow, we don't have a lot of outsiders here. And I just thought, Oh, I'm not really an outsider. Like I've been in consumer products my whole life, but it's the perspective of how close knit, um, the furniture industry is and how a lot of the, the owners of the company are either family members and or founders of the company. And I think that really rich um, legacy and history is unique to the furniture industry. And I think it makes it really special. What do you feel like is the biggest change that you've made in the first two years, the most significant um, change that you've made at Twinstar? I think the product portfolio is completely different and the mix is totally different. We've got a lot more consumer oriented kind of patented innovation. Um, and we have, um, we have an understanding of the consumer such that I think we can help our retail. We are really well suited to help our retail partners drive growth just because of what we know in our platform that we've developed on consumer intelligence. Um, I think that would be the first one, like the product is really at the center. On the other side, the operational infrastructure, we've invested um, a lot into improving and enhancing and optimizing our operating infrastructure. Um, from, you know, a new ERP system into a lot of the different processes. And hopefully we have, um, we're servicing a lot better as well. Lori, what, what do you think the, the biggest changes yet to come are for Twinstar? Yes, I think, um, I think we've got a lot of opportunity to grow the electric fireplace market and to continue to expand um, our product portfolio around different areas of the home, including office, living room. I believe that we'll have a couple acquisitions um, in the mix in the future that will add to the portfolio and probably expand us um, beyond where we are today. And um, look, I see really good things because um, we, at the end of the day, I think we've invested in um, a really good leadership team. We have, um, at the core of what we do, really good consumer insight, which updates every 24 hours. So it never gets old. It's always updating based on our segments. Um, so we always have new insights that we can provide and that we use in our product development and merchandising and messaging. And, um, you know, as long as we continue to be open to change when dynamics change, um, I think that, um, and tweaking what we're doing, we've got really good things in store for Twinstar in the future. Some people say, um, when, when you talk about consumer insight, they, they quote Henry Ford and say, you know, if we had asked the consumer what they wanted, she would, they would have said faster horses. Um, what do you say to those who feel like it's in the furniture industry is telling the consumer what they want or giving them what they want and they'll recognize it when they see it? 
Um, actually, I think that there's, I think that's right on. I think there's a ton of value in that. Understanding consumer insight isn't just about what they say. It's what you observe and what you observe the unmet needs are. So if I were to say, um, you know, maybe a furniture independent retailer, let's say he has one store. Well, and he's got, you know, he's got a base of customers. I bet without knowing that he could segment his customers that come into his store and he could tell you about how they live what they do, um, what they're looking um, for in furniture, and maybe he could observe some things. Maybe he's friendly with them and he's been to their home and he could say, you know, wow, you really need a bar cart because even though you don't think you do, like you entertain a lot and I noticed that it's all cluttered on your end table. I mean, just as an example, I think that um, people, a lot of people, um, and I would, I would argue probably a lot of the furniture independents, they already have a ton of insight because it's, who they see coming through their doors all the time. And, um, you know, part of being driving consumer insight is not just being curious and observing, but it's understanding and looking at the problems that people are facing and consumers very rarely, I agree with Henry Ford. It's like they can rarely articulate what exactly it is that they need as the solution, but they can tell you what their problems are. They can tell you what their problems are. And then it's up to you through your understanding of manufacturing operations, other consumer insights to figure out and market context to figure out, well, how do I build that right solution? That is the, that is the intersection of, um, you know, consumer insight meets like great new product. That is how you do it. Okay. So let's talk about Lori Gonzalez, the person you said you like to play games. You met some that you played favorite game. Taboo. Are you good at it or do you cheat? Oh, no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm really good. And I'm super competitive. <laughs> oh, are, are you one of those kind? Do you make sure that people obey the rules? And Okay. No, um, no, but we have fun. Like, there's a lot of laughing. Like, I really like to have fun and laugh. And um, I like just, uh, I just, I just like to get to know people. Great. Favorite movie? I've got a lot. Um, I like a lot of different genres. Like I, I am not like a black and white person when it comes to like my preferences and things. So like my movies, my favorite movies, I like action movies like Born Identity, that whole series. I like old classics like, like Dead Poets Society, one of my favorite movies. I'm a total romantic, like I'm such a girl. Um, I like The Holiday, that's one of my favorite movies. Um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, I mean, that's a classic office space, airplane, funny things, like that kind of humor I love. Um, and then like, um, I recently saw I Can Only Imagine, and that is, um, it's, a, it's based on the true story of the lead singer of Mercy Me. It's an awesome, awesome movie. Um, those are the movies that I, I like a whole like host of them. Um, I would say like, unfortunately, during like this season of my life, I usually see or hear most of the time, not even see it, our kids movies, right? When I'm driving in the car and the kids are watching movies in the backseat. So that's kind of my reality today. And you get to watch them over and over and yeah. over and over. <sighs> yes. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Been there, done that. Yeah. Um, if, I've asked this of a number of people. If there was someone that you could sit down and have dinner with, anybody all throughout history, other than a deceased family member, um, who would that be? Jesus. I mean, yesterday was Easter or a couple days ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, absolutely, unequivocally, he would be the one. Great. 
What is your favorite sound? Uh, I like, um, I mean, I love the beach. I love the ocean waves and I love like the smell of that. Um, I love the sound of my husband's voice <laughs> and just, um, you know, I love to hear my kids laughing. I couldn't, I'm with you on all of those. In this case, it's, it's my wife's voice. Your husband's voice doesn't really <laughs> right. do anything for me. Yeah. <laughs> Least favorite sound. Sound. Um, yeah. Let's, let's see. I would say uh, my kids crying, like hate that. Mm -hmm. um, or when you hear like a car accident, like the really like loud sound, you know, you hear car accidents a lot in South Florida and it's just, uh, it's deafening. Okay. Last question. Favorite curse word? Well, I am somebody who like I aspire to say like sugar pie. Like I have a lot of those like like things. Like I do that a lot like in, in place of a curse word because um, like our kids are not allowed to curse. But, um, you know, there are many, many times, especially in the office um, with the leadership team or others when it warrants it. It's like, dude, like WTF, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, uh, like what the fuck is, is, uh, is it's kind of a classic Lurieism when it warrants it. And it's only for, you know, you got to save those moments for when you really need to use it. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. We look forward to seeing what's next. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Bill, for talking uh, to me. Absolutely. Take care.